All right, you ready to study God's Word? All right, get your Bibles out. Open it up to Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel, I'm going to be reading from um, chapter 19 here in just a moment. We're going to be concluding our series on reclaiming the seven cultural mountains. If you'd like to catch up, you can go to the website and you can um, go to the media and you can begin to see and listen to uh, what's going on through iTunes. And we encourage you to do that. We don't have time to review all of that, but uh, we want to wrap this up. And then, of course, next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And we'll be teaching on the theme of victory and the resurrection, obviously. And then we're going to start a new series at the beginning of May. And I'm kind of working out the kinks in the title. Uh, but it's going to be something like, uh, Are You Playing With Dynamite? Because how many of you know after Jesus did all that he did, he said, I'll not leave you as orphans, but I'll send another. And so we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and uh, his explosive work in our life. And so that'll be a good month, the month of May as well. But uh, we need to finish up what we've been talking about. I believe it's a, a, a part of our culture, a part of our vision here. It's important that we understand this. And I've called the series Reclaiming the Seven Cultural Mountains. And I've been talking to you about what it means to be influencers in our culture. That's what Jesus desired for each one of us when he said that we were the salt of the earth and we were the light of the world. That you and I were to be influencers. In fact, the biblical understanding of dominion, I believe, is probably best defined as influence. If you exercise dominion over something, you are an influencer. And so if you're in a dark room and the light bulb gets turned on, that light bulb is the influencer. Over the darkness, uh, as salt was used in ancient times as a preservative, as salt goes on a decaying piece of beef, and suddenly it becomes a preserving agent, that salt becomes the influencer. And, and I believe that's probably the best way to begin to understand biblical dominion. Uh, most people, when they hear the word dominion, they, uh, they, they automatically think of domination, and that almost becomes like tyranny. And Jesus was never about tyranny. He was never about a tyrannical rule. If you want to understand how rulership works, all you have to do is look at how Jesus rules. He's a ruler, but he always gives people the ability to choose his rulership or not. He's an influencer, and he gives people the ability to respond to that or not. Now, there will come a day out of God's sovereignty, and this whole thing is concluded, we'll not be able to stand against him. There'll be no way that we can stop what it is he wants to do. But uh, for now, he works through people, and he's reaching out to people. He's compassionately wooing people, and through his people, he's wanting to reach and touch the world, the nations, and our culture. And we've been using the verse Isaiah 2.2, and again, I'll just read it to you. It says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, now you know that's us, right? The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. The prophetic word is that God is doing a work in His church of such proportion. I understand it may not look like that today. But things can change rapidly. And God wants to do such an incredible work of such proportion in his church and in his people that literally 
the church arises as a mountain on top of all the other mountains. And it will be of such influence and it will contain such answers and solutions that the nations of the world will literally begin to stream to it. And I just find it incredibly hopeful. Now, I know this may sound paradoxical. It may sound even crazy. But do you understand that the reason our nation is in such futility today? And I know it's an aggravating thing. You turn on the news and everybody's arguing with somebody. There's such futility. We're wanting answers. But if, if the Republicans give an answer, then the Democrats are mad. And if the Democrats give an answer, the Republicans are mad. And everybody's just mad. And there's such futility. And you listen to cable news and you listen to all the stuff that goes on. And I sit there and as I listen to all of this, if I were just to listen to it with my natural ears, it would be absolutely frustrating and aggravating because there's no solution coming out. And, and folks, I want you to know that that's the most hopeful sign there's been in a long time, that the earth is frustrated. Because Romans 8, right around verse 16, says that out of that frustration, God will move and that there will be a revelation of the sons and the daughters of God. So don't, don't enter into their frustration. God's, God's just allowing the nation and allowing the earth to get to the end of its rope. To get to the bottom of the barrel. You see, if we, it, it works personally as well as nationally. If a person refuses to listen to the wisdom of authority and the words of the Lord, if a person refuses to listen to that and respond to that, then God's only option is to allow pain to enter that person's life. Because you're either going to listen to authority and mentors and the wisdom of those who have already been through certain pain, or if you choose not to listen to that, what happens is you get to endure your own personal pain. So this is your choice. You either get to learn off my pain or you get your own. Why don't you learn off mine? Now, it works that way with nations, too. Listen to me. If America will not learn the lessons of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ancient Persia and ancient Assyria, if we will not learn the lessons even of recent times of the former Soviet Union, if we will not listen to the lessons of wisdom that is before our very eyes, then you know all that's left for us, even as Americans, is pain and frustration. Now, I, I know if you listen to too much talk radio, if you listen to too much cable news, what that sounds like is that somehow I'm diminishing America. No way. I believe America has a purpose in God. I believe this nation was founded because of the purposes of God. I believe it was providential. I understand all the providential happenings of our nation and how it came to pass. So I believe that, that America uh, has a wonderful plan in the heart of God. But America is great in so much as she serves the one true and living God. America is not exceptional because it just has a great economy. Let me tell you something. You can talk about American exceptionalism, but it's only exceptional when it serves the Lord. You're only exceptional when you serve the Lord. That's how it works. And if we choose not to serve the Lord, then we're no longer exceptional. But when we honor the Lord and we honor His ways, and we walk in His paths, and we choose to do what He has asked of us to do, then God, God is the master of turnarounds. 
He's the master of that which looks to be dead and resurrecting it again. And that's what this season is all about. If it says nothing else to us, it can seem as if something's dead, but you get the power of God in that thing and he'll resurrect it. And so have I given up on America? No, I believe God can let frustration reign for a season in order that the eyes of the blind might be opened in order that they'll quit seeking their answers in futile places, but they'll begin to look to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And folks, that's why we're more important than IBM. We're more important than a Fortune 500 company. We're more important than Microsoft and Google and multi-billion dollar corporations. We are the church. We are the house of the living God. It is here that answers reside. It is here that solutions reign. It is here where you and I know the truth that when Jesus gets involved in life, it works. It works. That's what Isaiah was prophesying. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be above every mountain. Now, here's the key. The, the, the key is the church has to work. See, if we're not working, then they won't look to us either. So we've talked about these things, and once again, I put on the screen, and I'm going to go through this real quick, that there are several mountains, seven mountains, I believe, that define culture. Remember, religion, post them, guys, the family, education, business, the media, Arts and entertainment and politics. All of these things together forge, form, and influence our culture. Jesus is Lord of all of those mountains. Now, I understand some of those mountains are not demonstrating his lordship. But he is Lord of all those mountains. He's Lord of every arena of life. There is no area that his lordship does not touch. And he exercises that rule and he exercises that dominion through his church or through you and through me. Now, the question we're left with is what's the solution? We've talked about these things in the weeks preceding. What's the solution? What's the answer? What should we do in our nation and culture in order to, to bring it back to the purposes that God intended for it? Is there something that can be done? And I believe there are some things that can be done. And if you have your... Bible's open to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. I want to talk to you for a moment or two of what I've entitled Strategies to Influence Mountains. Now that sounds kind of like a high, what we used to say, a highfalutin topic. I want you to stop for just a minute and I want you to bring to the forefront of your mind where it is that God has placed you at this very moment. Where, where are you in life? Where do you work? What's your career? Where is it that you find a lot of your time being spent? Bring that to the forefront. I don't know what arena that may be, but I want to suggest this to you, that you were placed there in order to influence it for the kingdom. doesn't matter what you do. You've been placed in that arena to be of influence, to affect it, to somehow, for the kingdom's sake, begin to demonstrate the rule of God in that arena. So while we talk about these great national issues and while we talk about all the things that are going on on this great macro scale, I want to bring it down real personal to you that the gospel is basically you and I being salt and light wherever it is God has placed us. That's where it begins. 
I may not change Washington, D.C. I may not be able to change great corporations. I may not be able, you know, to have impact in certain arenas of life. But if all of us together determine that whatever sphere of influence we have, we're going we're gonna to have an impact in that area. It's amazing what God can do with that small thing. Strategies to influence these mountains. In Luke's Gospel 19, I'm actually going to read to you uh, the account of Jesus right on the forefront of going into Jerusalem in what we know as the triumphal entry. And it says this, Luke 19, 41. It says, now as he drew near, meaning Jesus, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Can I just stop and say for just a moment, Jesus was looking at his, at his city and he was saying to this city with great compassion, it said that tears were brought to his eyes. He said, you aren't getting it. You don't know. There's a- the answer. He was the answer. The answer is literally before you. The things that you've wanted all your life are right before you, but you can't see it. And then he says in verse 43, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus looks at Jerusalem and he says, if only you had known, if only you had seen, if only you had responded to the very answer that was before your eyes and because you haven't, then your enemies are going to swoop in and literally Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And we know that it was in AD 70. It was literally destroyed. Now, the scripture tells us that through God's great plan that that he's causing Jerusalem to arise again. He's reestablishing Israel. Uh, Israel plays a part in all of the end time scenarios. And so we understand that that even this destruction was only a part of a larger picture. But it's a good place for us to leap from and begin to understand that as Jesus looked at his city, I think it's time we started looking at our city. And we started looking at our regions and our nations. And he could see the potential in it. He could see the possibilities in what would take place in Jerusalem. It was, it was so passionate in him that it actually brought him to tears. And, and I think it's important because I was on a on a blog thread the other day, and it was interesting as I was visiting with this uh, fellow Christian, we were having this conversation about is God just interested in individual salvation or is he really concerned about nations and national salvation? And, and, and the view of the one that was writing to me was, and that is we should just zero in on personal salvation, and certainly he has a point to be made. But I told him, I said, you can't get away from the point in the Bible that God speaks to nations. He literally speaks to nations. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. I mean, I could go all through there and talk about how he speaks to nations and how his plan was to work in nations. The scripture even tells us that the nations are an inheritance. And so you just can't write off a nation. You understand, we have a responsibility to our nation. We have a responsibility to our region. We have a responsibility to our city. I'm very much aware of the fact that most of that responsibility uh, 
is manifested as we work with people, individuals even. I, I understand that. I get that. But sometimes we, we have to see the bigger picture that it's just not you, me, you know, us four, no more, Acts 2, 4, close the door. I mean, uh, there are times we got to get a, a much bigger picture that we have responsibilities with regards to what takes place in our regions. And I believe that Jesus is weeping over our nation and our cities today. And he's saying much the same words. He's saying, if you only knew. If you only knew America, what I had for you. If you only knew South Carolina, what I had for you. If you only knew Charleston, what I had for you. If you could only see, if you could only comprehend, if you could only get a hold of what my purposes are for you. But how many of us realize that in much the same way we have closed our eyes as a nation? We have closed our eyes as a state and even as a city. We've, we've closed our eyes. And the thing that we just need to be brought back to a certain reality is this, that if God did not spare Israel and he did not spare Jerusalem from judgment. Think about this. These are his covenant people. Israel had a covenant with God. Jerusalem was the apple of his eye. And if these uh, cities and nations whom God had so much invested in were not exempt from judgment and from destruction, what do you think he'd do with an America? What do you think he'd do with us? If he would let his covenant people experience these kind of things. Now, that's kind of awesome when you think about it. But here's the good news. The good news is this. We have a moment. I know it's, it seems dark at times. It's frustrating. It seems like we're just at a dead end. But if we awaken, we can turn our nation back to God. But it's going to take influencing these seven mountains. They are not going to be subdued until we realize that it's going to take on our part some strategy and some spiritual investment. We've got to think beyond our own personal conveniences and comfort, but we've got to begin to think about greater things. I'm already thinking about what am I leaving my grandchildren and I don't have grandchildren yet. But if something doesn't happen... My grandchildren aren't going to have the same culture that I grew up with. And those of you that are grandparents in here today, you know as a fact that your grandchildren do not have the same culture you enjoyed. I mean, to this day, I go into my neighborhood and I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I just know human beings and I watch the kids that parents just allow these little dinky small kids just to run around the neighborhood and and without any supervision, and I'm sorry, in the day we're living in, I say to myself, I don't know that I could do that. Because all it takes is some crazed nut to grab them, and it's gone. Now, I understand back when I grew up, we'd jump on our bicycles, there were no cell phones, there was no way to communicate, we would leave at 8 o'clock in the morning, and my parents wouldn't see me till dinner time. They didn't know I'd swim in creeks, I'd play in half-built houses, I'd ride to a shopping area. They wouldn't know where I was. I was gone all day long, and my mom and dad never thought a thing about it. In fact, they were happy to see me go all. They were, they were, they were, be free. They were happy about it. If you're a parent today, you know you just can't do that. 
I can't imagine life without cell phone. I can't imagine me not being able to communicate with kids. I can't imagine, not in the day we live in. It is deteriorated, and if something doesn't stop, do you understand that the deterioration our grandparents have seen from where they were growing up to where now we are growing up, if we keep moving along that in exponential ways, can you imagine where your grandchildren are going to be? I don't know if that puts any sort of fear in you. It should at least put concern, and and, and it ought to put some sense of burden on you that we have a responsibility as believers to not leave this place in worse condition than we found it. We're going to have to develop some strategies. I'm going to have to think beyond my life and what it means for my life. And I've got to start thinking about my kids and my grandkids. I've got to start thinking about what it is I'm leaving them. It's not just about me anymore. If Jesus tarries and there's another thousand years and people look back on our generation, church historians look at our generation, if we don't awaken, do you understand what our generation of believers will be described in the books of church history. Well, they may describe us as that, but I'm going to have my place in a little footnote somewhere in there that says, well, there was at least one in there that tried. Come join me in the footnotes. The children of Israel had a divine assignment to dwell in a land that would become a nation that would give glory to God. I believe we have that same mandate. I believe that our American forefathers and founders likened the start of this country to the nation of Israel. If you read the documents, they would use and reflect upon the nation of Israel with regards to the founding of this nation. They used language out of the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy to communicate divine purpose in the founding of America. I don't believe that's changed. I believe America has its sins, but I believe America has its purpose. Just like you have your sins, but you have a purpose. I believe that to be true. Nations were meant to give glory to God. Now, I'm probably the only one that does these things. I was reviewing a book. Well, actually, it was a volume set of books by a guy by the name of Edward Gibbons. You may recognize his name. Gibbons wrote the series in the 18th century that's entitled The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. I don't know if you've ever tried to read 18th century English. It's a foreign language. But we waded through some things, looked at a few things. But Gibbons, interestingly, back in the 18th century, that's the 1700s, I think he wrote it just a little bit after the Revolutionary War, but he... He was the first one to tackle the question, why great nations fall? Isn't that interesting that that he would write a book like that on the inception of what would become the greatest nation the world had ever known? Why do great nations fall? He gives a number of suggestions as to why. I started Googling some things, and I found that there are some lists that have over 200 reasons why Rome, the empire of Rome, fell. Isn't that amazing? 200 reasons as to why it fell. Now, I'm not going to give you all 200 this morning. Can you say amen? Because you really don't care. But you might care to see it kind of synopsized in a few things. 
And, and I just want you to think about our nation as we look at what Gibbon said. Now, this isn't me. Don't be mad at my list. I'm just giving you the list as it's synopsized by a guy who wrote these things in the 18th century. So as you see it, if something kind of hits you or strikes you wrong, uh, all I can say is you can blame the dead guy. All right, but I just want you to see what they were saying in the 18th century with regards as to why great nations fall and just begin to think about your own nation. Number one, he said there was a rapid increase in divorce, mostly through adultery, the acceptability of homosexuality and the undermining of the traditional home structure. Let's just stop here for just a second. If I were to put that up on the screen and ask what nation does that resemble? You know exactly what you'd label. Sure you would. America. This was, this was Gibbons in the 18th century reflecting back on 5th century Rome. Number two. An increasing of taxes for frivolous pursuits. Wow. Okay. You mean, you mean, you mean they were back then studying the mating habits of, I don't know, you know. What are those things called? Well, I just call them roaches. What are those things called in the palmetto bug? That's right, a palmetto bug. Well, it's important to know the mating habit, I would suppose, of palmetto bug. I don't know. Number three, an obsession with sports, especially brutal ones. You remember the Coliseum, the games, the gladi gladiatorial games? I, I mean, I'm not throwing stones, but I mean, you can turn on UFC, MMA. At least they put some rules to it now. It used to have no rules. Interesting. Escalating buildup of military and constant wars. Constant wars. We're facing wars right now where we're still wrapping up Iraq. You've got Afghanistan. They're making noise in Pakistan. We were doing something with Libya. Amazing, isn't it? Constant wars. Number five. The passivity of religion, especially Christianity, and the superficiality of its practice. This was the most interesting thing that I've never seen on other lists with reference to Gibbons. Is that he maintained that one of the reasons the empire fell was that Christians, as you will recall, prior to about A.D. 300, they were persecuted, lived in catacombs. You know the stories. And then suddenly this ragtag bunch of believers called the church... Even though they were poor, they had no money, they really had zero natural influence, they had such impact in the culture that Constantine uh, issues an edict of toleration in about 303, and what happens is they become acceptable. And so their embraced Christianity becomes an embraced religion within the Roman Empire. Now we're about 200 years later, and the problem is, is that the persecuted church that was influential has become the embraced church, which has lost its sense of saltiness. It's no longer worried about influencing the culture. It's been assimilated into the culture. It no longer, it no longer has a call to challenge, challenge the culture, but now it's simply another reflection of the culture. I am so amazed at how we work so hard designing church so it looks more like the world in order to identify with something that is decaying and being destroyed and it's going down the tubes and we're trying to identify with that. I'm identifying with my Lord who lifts me out of pits. He lifts me out of ditches. 
He breaks the destruction and gives me abundance. I'm not trying to figure out how to be like the world. Jesus said, you may be in the world, but you're not to be of the world. No, you're not. Oh, my goodness. Number six, the decline of morals, ethics, values, and increase in corruption. Have mercy. Do, do we even have to illustrate these things? Number seven, failing economy and unemployment of the working class. I'm going to say that number seven just for a minute, guys. Failing economy and unemployment of the working class. Can I just share this with you? I'm amazed at at, at how our unemployment rates are so high, but we can still give gajillionaires millions of dollars for their bonuses. And then I listen. I listen to the sounds of the capitalists. Now, listen to me. I believe the Bible teaches capitalism, but the Bible doesn't teach greed. Now, I told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. I understand what happens with an enablement mentality and an enablement class. I understand when we enable people and they don't have to work and they don't have to get up and get going, they they become leeches and parasites of society. But I'm going to the other side now, and I'm going to tell you that when CEOs refuse to do what's right with millions of dollars to people who are helping run a company, that's not right either. And I'm, and I'm just simply saying, I'm not against profiting. I'm not against capital. I'm not against these things. Again, I think the Bible teaches these things. But there comes a moment with how many billions do you need? And the reason all of a sudden people look toward government to get it is because we refuse to challenge the sins of the rich. You can sin on both sides of the equation. You can be in sin as a poor person, as you leech off of society, and you can be sin as a rich person, as you refuse to do your part as unto God to help your brother. And if we choose not to worship and obey God, then what happens is we'll get a tyrant in Washington, D.C. who will force us to do what he thinks is right. Now, I don't want that any more than you want it, but I'm telling you it's because there's sin in the American camp. Number eight, increased natural disasters and plagues. Now, again, this is Gibbons in the 18th century. Number nine, the inability to control borders and the influx of barbarians, the loss of identity. Number 10, swift expansion of the empire and state that it collapsed under the weight of the bureaucracy. I'll just leave it at that. There's more I could list. But I think you can see the point that America is following certain historical patterns. And it's only going to lead us to a fall. Now, again, this isn't scripture that's speaking. This is just a historian of the 18th century. But history has shown us that unless these patterns are broken, the average lifespan of a civilization is somewhere between 200 and 250 years. So you do understand that as a nation, we are on borrowed time. So what's the solution? Give us an answer. Help us. I mean, pastor, this is all kind of discouraging. Give us something we can sink our teeth into. Well, let me give you some solutions here. And as I do that, I'm going to give you three failed ones. I'm going to knock this out. I have been doing this now for a lot of years. I'm going to knock out some failed strategies. Number one, a failed strategy, economic leveraging or boycotting. Now, I know that money talks. And I know that I spend my money carefully so as not to support things that are evil. 
But you see, we will never affect godly change by using the spirit of mammon. Now, I know there was a time there was this great boycott that went against Disney for all the things that Disney was doing. Can I just share this with you? You know, we can boycott things, but ultimately we are using the weapons of the world. They are carnal weapons to try to affect spiritual change. Now, it may be something we ought to avoid. I'm not saying it might not be something we ought not do. But I'm just simply saying that if we think that if we simply hold back our money, it will change anything. We don't have the willpower as the people of God to even do that. I've watched people going to do what people are going to do. So economic leveraging never changed anything. Number two, political power. Things never change from the top down. Isn't it interesting that even when Israel changed kings... Now, the southern kingdom may have done a little bit better at times. There were some revivalist kings that were slipped in the list. But even those revivalist kings oftentimes were replaced by evil kings. The northern kingdom almost had a consistent list of evil kings. And you can change the kings, and we can change the presidents, and you can put a new party in power, and we can do all of these things. But revival doesn't need to happen in the White House until it happens in God's house. Revival needs to happen in your house. In my house. And if revival started happening in our houses, in the house of God, I will guarantee you, politicians are waiting for what breeze will blow by so they can follow it. And if they begin to sense the breeze of the Spirit, they may not be converted, but they at least can feel the wind. You're following me. Politicians tell us what we want to hear. They'll come and tell us all the things, all the moral issues that we're concerned about. They will tell us all these things, and then no change ever happens. Why is that? It's because they speak what they think we want to hear, but their heart isn't in it. I'm going to tell you something as well. I just decided I'd do this. I know that there are people that are running for office who will stand up and look at you and say, well, my my personal conviction, I'll just give you the example. My personal conviction is that abortion is wrong, but I don't think you can legislatively outlaw it. Can I just share this with you that a baby in the womb does not care what you believe in your living room. It It wants to know what you believe in the halls of Congress when you cast a vote. That's what that baby wants to know. That baby wants to know what you believe when it comes down to crunch time and there's a vote that's being taken on because your personal conviction doesn't save its life. It's a legislative conviction. And it's time we talked about these things. You say, well, you alienate people. Well, I'm not looking to get people. I'm looking to change a culture. Number three, religious activity alone. Now, Now, again... There are things that I'm going to mention spiritually we've got to do. But, but if we just do this alone, it doesn't work. I mean, sometimes I think people just over-spiritualize everything. They, 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 I've done this too. I've got pastors together and we've prayed. And it's good to get pastors together and pray. I've done it. It's nothing wrong with it. But if getting pastors together to pray changed our nation, then our nation would be changed by now because we've gotten pastors together to pray. We've tried to get cities together to be unified spiritually. Oh, it's good. It's good. I mean, I'm not saying these things are bad, but, but I'm just looking at what's going on. We're still crumbling. We can feed the poor. We can do social justice. You know, we, we're, we're doing that. We're helping Sue Henshaw and Tri-County Family Ministries to feed the poor, to, to, to put coats on them in the wintertime. We go down there and we participate on a regular basis. All of this is good and needed. 
but our nation is still collapsing. There is going to have to be a strategy and a convergence of some things that are going to have to take place in all of our lives if we are going to be the generation that arises and becomes the salt and the light that at least holds this culture for one more generation. And I'll be honest with you, I guess if there's a selfish bone in my body, this is where it comes out. I'm holding this nation for only one reason. I've still got kids and grandkids on the earth. Call me selfish. If, if it were just about me, I'd just look at the world and I'd just say, go to hell. If it were just about me. But it's not just about me. It's about your grandkids too. It's about your children too. It's not about us anymore. We're just, we're, we're, we're just players for a moment. And, and God's looking at us and saying, well, you arise to your moment. So let me give you just a couple things here real quick. Culture-changing strategies. These are things that we can do. I may not change it all, but I can change some things. This is what I can do. Number one, a commitment to living truth-based. Christianity is truth-based. Culture, currently, is tolerance-based. Now, let me just define for you what they mean by tolerance. Let's look at this. Tolerance means, I won't tell you what to do if you don't tell me what to do. Believe what you want as long as it doesn't affect me. My truth is as good as your truth. Jesus is the only way. You're a bigot. You understand that's what current culture means by tolerance. You're only tolerant when, when, when you say anybody can punch your ticket so you can go to heaven. You understand. Then you're tolerant. You're acceptable. If, if you still believe in any exclusivity with regards to the gospel and that Jesus is the only way, I'll just wake you up to reality. You're an intolerant bigot in these days we're living in. That's me. I guess I'm an intolerant bigot. I still only believe there's one way to get to the Father. That's through Jesus. But our culture is steeped in relativism. Its relativism has existed now for nearly a generation and it has so infiltrated our children that now the children have become adults and they brought their relativism into the church to where now, I liked what my wife said. She used a statement the other day that I thought was so great. We were just visiting about this. She says we now not only have situational ethics, but now we have situational theology. And that is our theology just becomes whatever is convenient at the moment. We're no longer truth-based. There's no longer absolutes. We've got to understand that this isn't just about conservative policy. This is about getting back to the truth. We've got to be truth-based. We've got to function our life in the truth. Knowing the truth. Understanding the truth. Walking out the truth. Yes, we love people. We can be long-suffering. We can be patient. These things are the fruit of the Spirit. But there comes a moment that we all live truthfully this is what god says and there's no harm in allowing what he says to begin to be applied in other arenas of life here's here's the deal i've come to the bible and god's ways have endured thousands of years why would i why would i change this for what they're offering me today in washington and columbia and all these places 
I, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm no longer, that, you know, that doesn't intimidate me anymore. Just go beat your head on whatever you think the next piece of legislation is going to be. Until God is able to write his laws on people's hearts, it doesn't matter how much legislation gets passed. Our problem isn't the Ten Commandments hanging in the public school building. Our problem is getting the Ten Commandments written in people's hearts. Number two. How many of these have you got, Pastor? How long are we going to be here? I will be here just a minute or more. Here. Number two, a personal burden to reach the lost. I'm giving you some strategies you've got to develop. A personal burden to reach the lost. Cultural transformation starts with personal transformation. When we talk about these great issues of why America is, is, is not what it should be and why it isn't going the direction, the whole issue boils down to this. People's hearts aren't changed. How does that, how do we, how do we change that? Do we wait for the next Billy Graham to ride into town and fill the stadiums up? I, I, I hope God raises one. But until he raises one, my responsibility is each person that I come in contact with becomes my personal point of influence. And I just want to ask you, are you consistently on your toes to share the gospel? What are you doing to reach the harvest? I mean, we race the engine in here on Sunday morning. Our hearts are all, you know, pounding with the need to be, be salt and light and serve our God. And we're tuning ourselves up as we listen to God's word and his voice. But have you put yourself personally into the mandate of jumping into a harvest field and looking around you wherever it is God has placed you and begin to get burdened and listen to the Lord as he says, that's your assignment. That person there, it needs to be your assignment. I just read this the other day. 155,000 people will die today. 155,000 people will die today. Statistically, as best as we can surmise, 104,000 of them went to hell today. Now, I, I, I'm not an evangelist per se, but that bothers me. Will it bother us? to do something in our everyday life. Number three, we've got to begin to see our vocation as our ministry. Our vocation is our ministry. What kingdom thing is God asking of you today at your job? Some of you, some of you could do something as simple as looking at maybe somebody who's a believer at your job, doesn't have to come to this local church. They're a believer though. And maybe you just kind of, you just start a moment, a prayer meeting. Just a moment but before you start work. Maybe you have to do it before you go on the clock even. But you just do something. What can I do to begin to just get God involved where I'm at? Maybe people are in your sphere of acquaintance that God is trying to reach through your influence. Maybe there's something you can do that can just somehow or another bring the God moment into the equation of where you work. It's interesting to me, you know, I, I mentioned some months ago about the great Anson Street Revival, you know, that took place down in downtown Charleston. The Anson Street Revival that was birthed there was visited by a man from New York, a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lamfer. And he was touched by that revival that started in Charleston, although it never got legs on it. But Jeremiah Lanford was so touched by the Spirit of God, a businessman from New York, that he went back to New York City and he began to start meetings at the lunch hour for businessmen that they would pray for New York and that they would pray for the nation. 
Just businessmen would come. There weren't no preachers there. Wasn't any minister that was there heading it all up. He just started this thing. And historians tell us that what was birthed from that was actually the third great awakening in our country. The awakening, whether it happens from a pulpit or not, is really insignificant to where it could happen where you're at. Maybe where you're at is where the awakening will start. Maybe where you're at is where God will begin to move. Maybe what he gave you to do as a vocation is the vocation. Jeremiah Lanford was just, just a businessman that God used to move through to touch a nation. Isn't that amazing? Number four, I'm hurrying. We've got to educate and we've got to mentor the next generation. You know, I gave you the statistics last week of the diminishing biblical worldview that we're now facing generationally. I, I encourage you again, go to the website. I'll, I'll, post it on, I'll post it on our website so you can link over, take the worldview test. I think it's a very important thing that we've got to come to grips with. But when you begin to see that the upcoming generation, 35 and younger, that as a generation only have about a 4% totality of a biblical worldview, as much as we might get aggravated with them, come on, let's be honest and say some of that falls at our table. Because we didn't press it upon them to understand God's ways and to know how he works. We as parents and as grandparents are going to have to get serious. If, if, if we're going to do our part in, in touching a culture, then we're going to have to learn that there's some things we're going to be required to do within our own households, with our own children, and with the next generation. We've got to be committed to this as we are to their sports. We've got to be as committed to this as we are to their hobbies and to their schooling. I mean, we've got to be committed to these things, man. We can't, we can't just say this, these, these three things are important and now kind of church stuff and Bible stuff, that's optional. We're losing a culture. And somewhere inside of us, we've got to get a hold of the burden of that. Our culture is collapsing and we have time for everything except understanding His ways. We have time for whatever it is we want to enable them and do with them. And I love my kids. And my boys played. My boys played sports. They played football. Clay, Clay was, you know, he was a basketball player. He's he was the number two shooter in all the low country. I loved that. I loved all those things. Tyler was a football player. He went and played in the All Star games and all the things that we. I I understand that, and I want them to do that. Listen to a dad's heart. I want that for my kids, but it doesn't do them a lick of good if they can't play in God's ways in their life. Even if they made it to the major leagues, they'd get a billion dollars and they'd get a brain cramp. We've got to take this seriously. Disciple them. Discipling isn't the church's job. It's our job. We do our best. You know, I come in here and do my best. But you know, an hour, 45 minutes to an hour a week, man. All you can do is all you can do. We, 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 we got to purpose ourselves in this regard. Number five, we begin to engage people in dialogue. You know, I, we, we do Facebook. Facebook has been the greatest tool for me to challenge people with their cultural viewpoints. I got friends all over the place from every different background. I, I, I even became friends with an, this atheist guy. It was kind of an amazing thing. He would begin to write these things, and I just challenge him. 
And he'd get aggravated at me, and I'd just challenge him. And we'd just go back and forth until finally he'd, he, you know why? It's because this is right. It always ends up being right. Now, you may say, I don't know that I could do that. Well, you might not be able to do it well at, at, at the start, but until you do it, you'll never get well or good at it. I, I mean, we've got to just start engaging in the dialogue. I mean, I, again, the Internet is such a fancy way to do it, a technological way to do it, and that's just one of the ways that I determined to do it. But I, this is what I've just decided. I've just decided if people are going to just be bold in their pronouncements with regards to their evil or their sin, I'm, just, I'm not going to be upset about it. I'll just be equally as bold. I'll just say, I, I think you're wrong. You say, well, you'll alienate people that way. <laughs> no, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to win them just so they can get to hang around me. I'm trying to affect a culture because they've got to have heart transformation. And they'll never be transformed unless they hear the declaration, or what Paul said, the preaching, the declaration of the gospel. They've got to hear it from us. Yes, reach out to them. No, don't, tr- I mean, don't try to be odd or alien. I mean, I'm not trying, but, but there comes a moment that you look and say, have you ever thought of this? Have you ever seen this? And maybe, maybe they're bright and they can get you twisted up, but it just take it as a learning experience. Go back, disciple some more, and go back into the hunt. You got to engage. We've got to do that. Number six, we got to covenant with other change agents. I want to hang around people that are really serious about being salt and light. I want to covenant with other change agents. I want to covenant with people who, who have a heart and a desire to not live their life unto themselves, but to live their life for something greater than themselves. I want to exhaust myself in something greater than myself. I, I think we ought to be a stepping stone. I, I think we ought to be a path so that another generation can follow us. I want, I, there, there's a message I'm going to bring about being a, about being a, a memorial marker. And, and, and our lives need to be markers that people can look to. And even after we're gone, they can look back to. My legacy with my children is not going to be the fact that I'm going to leave them houses and boats and property and money. That would be a great thing if, if I were to have accrued that. And I'm not saying that, that it's not a good thing. But the greatest legacy we can leave our kids and our grandkids is when we're gone, that they're just visiting with each other one day and they'll say something. Do you remember when dad used to say this? Do you remember when grandpa used to say this? Do you remember grandpa this, dad that? I'm t- that's our legacy. Our legacy is when our life has been so poured out into their lives that something comes out of them that's really not them, but it's become the heritage of the Lord through the servants of the Lord. And I want to covenant with people like that. That when we're all said and done and when legacy maybe has run its course or whatever God's plan is for us in the future, this much everyone will know that there was a people of God that came through Charleston. They came through Charleston. Kind of a weird bunch, but they made it through Charleston. They lived it all out. They left it all on the field. There wasn't anything left over. They took nothing with them. They gave everything they had. They took seriously that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. They gave it all, left it on the field. And then lastly, just we pursue God into a new dimension. I started looking at the change agents in the Bible. 
whether it was Joseph or Moses or Nehemiah, whether it was Paul, the disciples, it didn't really matter who the change agent might be. But as I looked at these change agents, it seems to me that the the similarity in all of their walks or all of their happenings was this. They had a moment that they they had such revelation from God. They had experienced God to such a dimension. They, 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 they had been impacted by his presence to such a dimension that they just weren't, they weren't the same anymore. They just, they were different. They were transformed. You know, for Moses, when he, when he would be encountered by God, literally his face would change. I always think of the old Cecil B. DeMille movie whenever I think of Moses. I don't know that Moses looked like Charlton Heston, but... Whenever I think of Moses, I think of Charlton Heston. And I remember all through the movie, once he would encounter God and he would encounter over that, that, that face and that beard would become whiter and whiter and whiter. Just because you can't encounter God and stay the same. There's, there's something that's transformative that takes place. Listen, the reason, the reason maybe we aren't salt and light and as impactful as we can be at the moment is simply because we've not been impacted by God at the depth we need to be impacted by Him. Maybe, maybe it's because, because I, I know for some, I won't say for everyone, they say, oh man, I just, evangelism, it's hard for me. Sharing and witnessing, it's hard for me. Getting into a conversation, that's hard for me, Pastor. Pastor, it's just hard for me to do some of the things you, you said. I understand in the flesh it is hard. But when you've been impacted, and transformed i always remember what the disciples said in the book of acts they said this they said we could not help but speak the things which we have seen and heard when was the last time that happened to you when you said i I cannot help i just can't keep quiet i i i I realize i just can't i can't stop i just you've been encountered by god there's a there's a scene uh, in the movie Forrest Gump. After he comes back from Vietnam, and remember, in order to be faithful to his friend Bubba, he starts the shrimp company. And uh, he's shrimping. He's actually uh, ends up being quite good at it, as is the story with Forrest Gump. Everything he puts his hand to, as crazy of a guy as he is, everything he puts his hand to just success he's on the he's on the boat with uh who's his friend it was uh lieutenant dan that's right lieutenant dan lieutenant dan's on the boat with him and there's a hurricane warning and as you recall all the ships go in to port except forest he keeps out in the I guess the Gulf is where he was at. He keeps shrimping out in the Gulf. And, and a part of the storyline is them weathering this hurricane. And Lieutenant Dan is upset with God. And, and, and it's a whole scene. And, and the rest of the ships go back into port. And at the end of the hurricane, at the end of that vignette, that story, what happens is, is that all the ships that went into port were destroyed. But the one that stayed out on the sea, shrimping, fishing, survived. And even through that, he becomes the only shrimper now in the area, and he just becomes even more abundantly wealthy through the shrimping company. And I started to think about that scene. 
And you know what? There's a storm coming to America. If, if we think we've seen all that's going to happen, I've read the Bible. I know it's not all that's going to happen. I don't have timetables. I can't tell you when, where, if. But, I, but I'm smart enough to know that if Japan endures three, four, five earthquakes in a row like that, does that not make you stop and ask yourself if Matthew 24 just might not be real when Jesus said that in last times there'll be earthquakes in diverse places and you just read that? Can you not help but think that God is not involved here somewhere? There's a storm coming. Now listen, listen. We, we, we can either hold the fort and pull the ships in to the dock and we'll be destroyed with the rest of culture. Or we can go ahead and keep our ship out in the middle of the storm. We can keep fishing in the middle of the storm. We can keep declaring in the middle of the storm. Maybe Lieutenant Dan, you know, I understand he's mad at God, but we can keep interceding in the middle of a storm. And in the middle of a storm, God can cause incredible amazing culturally transforming happenings to take place and and you know what this is this is the this is the paradox and this is the mystery and the enigma of it all it's this and that is you can be in the middle of a storm and god can still pour out his blessing upon you as you're faithful to what he's asked you to do i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you this are you ready are you ready to move off the port to move out of the stands to get back on the field begin to say, Lord, I'm not here just for me and mine, but I am here for your purposes. I am here to be a generation that does my part in seeing to it that the nation you've put me in reflects the glory of God. That's why the prophets arose in Israel. Their heart was, let's turn the nation back. Let's turn the nation back. Nations were designed to give glory to God. Would you stand with me?